they know which one of us is long-winded. <laughs> I was thinking about those outdoor uh, services that are potentially going to happen, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if Kids Cove was outdoors on those days, and we could, you know, at that space between singing and preaching, we could just like have the parents go drop your kids off in the woods or something. <laughs> they could be like climbing on the trees back there while we're <laughs> having the rest of the service. I am very thankful for you this morning. I, it is very comforting to come up here on this stage to, to teach knowing that I'm speaking to friends and family. I, I will admit to you that uh, in the past week as I was preparing this, I struggled with this message, getting everything together. Not that it's hard, but there are just so many different ways it could have gone, and I really wanted, uh, I really wanted to go a direction that the Lord would have for you this morning. And so I got in, I came in this morning, I had a book to drop off in Joe's office, and when I walked back there, there was a group of people meeting there, praying for this service and praying for me as I prepared, and it was just very helpful to my heart. So thank you, those of you who did that. I'll tell you in a minute where we're actually going with this, but first, who knows what this is? Anybody know? what book this is. I'm trusting that you can't actually read the spine from here. Anybody? Steve Basler knows what it is because I showed it to him on the way in. Anybody know? Yell it out. No, it kind of looks like a dictionary or something. This is my very well-loved and very much read copy of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, okay? I've had this book for a long time. My wife gave it to me many years ago, and I've read it through a whole bunch of times. It's actually three books in one, so you got like the Fellowship of the Ring here, and then you've got the two towers here, and you've got the Return of the King in the back. But right here, this last 127 pages of this book is what separates the kind of regular reader of this book from the real serious nerds, okay? That's the appendix. It's actually multiple appendices, okay? But it's an appendix on the end of the book. And in that appendix, in those last 127 pages, you could, and I have done this at times in my life, you could memorize the family trees of fictional characters. You can learn to speak languages that don't exist in our world. You can write, you can learn to write using alphabets that were completely invented by the author, all right? That is nerdy stuff to do, right? Okay. <laughs> But in doing that, what it does is it helps you kind of learn the backstories of a lot of things that happen in the main part of the book, and you start to see how things fit together. And all of a sudden, things that just kind of happened in passing in the telling of the story make all kinds of sense. So that's what I'm hoping to do today with today's sermon. Today's, the, the title of today's message is The Covenants, and it's intended to be kind of an appendix on our Exodus series. We just finished uh, an Exodus series that took several weeks. Sean did a fantastic job teaching the last uh, message last week. And today we're gonna put an appendix on that series. And I have a couple of goals, and the Lord was sort of developing these goals as I prepared this message, including adding an extra one this morning. But here are my goals this morning to help you understand the foundational promises in the Bible that help all of this big story arc fit together. That's one. To know how those covenants, those big foundational promises, apply to you as believers today. And then thirdly, and this is the one the Lord has really laid on my heart for you to really grasp, is who you are because of those covenants. Who you are because of those covenants. And I think you'll find that it is true what the Lord said to Joshua in chapter 23, verse 14. He said, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Amen? So let's pray, and then we'll get into the covenants. Father God, I am thankful for this church. I'm thankful for this group of people that you have brought together. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to hear you and understand you and speak your words. 
And Lord, I ask that you would help everyone who hears this message to hear you and understand you and be changed by your words. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I got extra time, right? So I can take a drink every once in a while. All right, so in Exodus, we really mentioned just two covenants that the Lord made with his people. One, we just kind of mentioned in passing, and that's the covenant he made with Abraham. And he remembered that covenant when he rescued his people out of the land of Egypt. And then we talked at length about the covenant he made uh, with the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. But there are more covenants to be discussed. In fact, depending on how you count and depending on which scholars you ask, there are anywhere between five and eight covenants. And then depending on where you do your research, they might be called by different things. Today, we're going to address six covenants. And we chose those six because they're kind of like the most clear. The other two that are kind of out there are, are reasonable to, to spend time researching, but we wanted to be as clear as we possibly can. So we're gonna to stick to these six covenants that the Lord has made in his scriptures with his people. And the first one, starting at the very beginning, is called the Adamic covenant, obviously named for the first man, Adam. And the phrase I want you to remember here is that God promises a redeemer. In the Adamic covenant, God promises a redeemer. So man was created, and when I say man, I mean mankind. Man and woman were created to rule. They were created to rule. Adam and Eve were more or less the king and queen over God's creation. And here's what I mean by that. In Genesis 1.28, the Lord says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then just a little while later in Genesis 2 verse 15, he says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So mankind was made to rule over God's creation. They were created sinless in God's image. They had perfect fellowship with the Lord God. They were in his presence and they were made to be in his presence and enjoy him forever. And it is no small thing, even though it's sometimes a little awkward to talk about, that they were in a garden and they were naked. That is no small thing. Think about what Sean taught last week. He taught about a tabernacle that had very specific ways that it was to be built, right down to specific materials that were to be used. And there were all of these elements inside the tabernacle that had to be built in specific ways and they were consecrated for use in the temple. And there were complicated robes that the priests had to wear to set themselves apart as holy unto the Lord. In the garden, none of that was necessary. None of it was necessary because they were already holy and sinless and could be in the presence of the Lord and stand face to face with Him and with each other unashamed. They were sinless and they had the ability, this is important, they had the ability to remain sinless. But it didn't last. We all know it didn't last. They did the one thing that they were told not to do and man fell. And the wages of that sin was death. Now why? were the wages of sin death. This is God we're talking about, and he can do things any way he wants. So why didn't he just discipline them some other way, and then they continue to live in the garden? Well, here's why. In Genesis 3, verses 23 and 24, the Lord says this, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it just kind of trails off. And it says, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. There was a tree called the tree of life. 
And if man had taken from that tree and eaten, he would have lived forever. And God was not willing to allow man to live forever in their now sinful fallen state. And so they were driven out. And it cannot be overstated how important that is. Because from this point forward, from the fall of man and their being driven out of the garden, all of the covenants hinge on this kind of struggle between the wages of sin being death and the need for redemption to be able to bring us back to that sinless state. All of the covenants hinge on that. And so man was made to rule. He was made sinless. He fell. He fell. The wages of sin were death. And that brings us to the actual speaking of the covenant in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the Lord speaking to the serpent who deceived Eve. And it says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is the speaking of that Adamic covenant. It's the very first mention of the good news of redemption that will come through Jesus Christ. It is referred to by scholars as the proto-evangelium. It's this idea that someday someone will come who will crush death, will crush the serpent's head, but he will suffer as a result. And it refers at the very beginning of the story to the cross. Now, how do we know that this is actually referring to Jesus? There's no mention of any names. It's just his offspring and her offspring. Well, we know it's Jesus because of those two words, her offspring. There is only one person in all of history who was born of a woman and it was a virgin birth. There was no man involved. So the only person it could possibly be referring to when it says her offspring is Jesus of Nazareth who was born of the Virgin Mary. The Adamic covenant is the announcement at the beginning of the whole story arc of Scripture that the Lord intends to send His Son Jesus on our behalf to die on the cross and redeem us through the shedding of His blood. This covenant that He makes is an unconditional covenant. It's unconditional because He's not requiring anything of man. He's just stating what He's going to do. Now, I said that one of our goals today as we go through these covenants was to see how they apply to us now, because we're in the time that Jesus, our Redeemer, has already come. And when I look out on this group of people gathered, I think the vast majority of you are saved, born-again Christians who know that and live in that reality every day. How does this, the Adamic covenant, apply to us today? Well, I want, to think, I want you to think about that, like, because of this covenant, what can I do? What can I do? Well, because the Adamic covenant has been fulfilled and we have a Redeemer, then we can live in large part as they did in Eden. Now, don't take that too far, okay? <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Don't take that too far. But think of the things that they enjoyed in Eden that we can enjoy today in 2021, being born again by the Holy Spirit of God. We can be in His presence. We can pray to Him and know that He hears us. We can have fellowship with the Creator of the universe. We have the ability, we're going to talk about this more a little later, but we have the ability to not sin. And though we still do, when we do, we have the, also the ability to forgive one another and restore relationships to peace and fellowship with one another. Here's a huge one. Husbands and wives, you can rule together over what the Lord has given you. 
You can rule together over what the Lord has given you, not with enmity, like was, was placed between the husband and the wife, not with enmity, but together as one, as equals who rule together. That's what you can do because of a covenant that was made with God's people thousands of years ago. Let's move on to the next one. The next covenant is the Noahic covenant, named for Noah. And the phrase I want you to remember here is God restrains His justice. He restrains His justice. He's going to send a redeemer, and now He's going to restrain His justice. The mankind is driven out of the garden. They are fruitful and multiply. They grow to a great people, but sin grows also, and they descend to a point where every thought and intention of their heart is evil all the time. And then this very sad statement is made in Genesis 6, verse 6. This is very sad. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so you know what's going to happen. You're familiar with this story. The Lord is going to send a flood to destroy all life on earth except for those who are preserved in the ark. This, a lot of scholars think of this as kind of the reversal of creation. He created everything, and now he's reversing that creation. Now, we said that God restrains his justice, but if you're thinking about this flood that took the lives of so many, that may not seem so much like a restraint. But the reality is because of the fall of man and their sinful heart, it would have been a just thing for God to wipe out all of humanity. It would have been just to eliminate. It was his mercy to restrain and rescue one family. And this is the first picture we get in this story arc through the covenants of grace. We see that this redemption promised to Adam is going to come through grace. One of the questions I've often asked when I think about the, the story of the flood is, why Noah? Of all the people, why Noah? And it is a very tempting possibility to look at a scripture that comes very shortly after this that says, Noah was a righteous man. It's very tempting to think, well, that's why Noah, because he was righteous. And it's true that he was righteous. But right before it says Noah was a righteous man, it says this very important thing, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's verse 8 of Genesis 6. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So while it is true that Noah was a righteous man, his rescue from the flood was completely because of an act of grace on the Lord's part. God showed favor to Noah. This too is an unconditional covenant that he's going to make. After the flood, after the world is uh, made new through this flood, it's completely changed, and Noah and his family and the animals come out of the ark, he, the Lord makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. Verses 9 through 11, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. We know that one very, very well. Well, what is the application for us today? What does that mean that we can do today as believers in Jesus who have received the same mercy and grace that Noah received? What can we do? Well, the Lord gave Noah a sign. He gave us a sign to remember this covenant. He said, I have set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, please hear me, because we live in 2021, and I'm sure all of you would recognize that in our current culture, much is made of the rainbow that the Lord never intended. Would you agree with that? 
we see the rainbow everywhere. And the Lord never intended that rainbow to be what it has come to mean in our culture. The rainbow is God's sign of his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. It's not the only sign of his faithfulness and mercy and grace. But what can we do every time we see that rainbow, whether we see it in the sky as the Lord created it, or whether we see it on our televisions, or we see it on flagpoles, or we see it wherever, every time we see that rainbow, we can remember God's mercy and grace and his faithfulness and his restraint for those who deserve to be punished for their sins, but God shows mercy. And so what I would ask you to do and ask you to remember that as you see that rainbow, wherever you see it, to take a moment and pray for the Lord's mercy and grace and his restraint to be extended to those in need of a savior. Amen? Amen. Let's move on to the next covenant. We've seen that God's gonna send a redeemer. We see that he restrains his justice and shows mercy. And then here's what happens. The Abrahamic covenant. This is where God restores a people to himself. He showed favor to Noah, but Noah was not sinless. The sin of Adam extended to Noah and it did not take long for Noah to fall into sin. And again, the population of the earth grew. Sin multiplied and grew until all the people of the earth found themselves exalting themselves as gods. And this is most obvious in the account of the Tower of Babel. People were exalting themselves. And so the Lord acted again. This time he did not destroy people off of the face of the earth. He just scattered them. He scattered them all over. And so because of that scattering, you now have nations in different geographic areas who speak different languages and are developing different cultures. And now instead of one people, they're all different nations. And the Lord is doing this in preparation for calling a nation for himself. And that's where the man, Abram, comes in to the story. Abram, who is from a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. If you look on your map, it would be in southern Iraq. Some people in this room have been to Iraq. And so you can imagine very clearly this man living in uh, that geographic location, what it looks like, what his life might be like. And the Lord calls to him. And in Genesis 12, verses one through three, when Abram first comes into the story, we hear the covenant right away. It says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you were listening closely, the Lord promised Abram three things. He promised him a land, he promised him a nation, and he promised him a blessing. All through this one man, God is going to make these three things happen and restore to himself a people for his own name. The land pretty easy to figure out. The land is the actual geographic land of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. The nation is the Israelites or the Jews. And the blessing is this, that God would make himself known to the world through them. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's going to make his name known through this people that he calls out and shows favor to. And he's been doing that. From that time, he's been doing that. If you think about it, this Bible that we all hold in our hands or on our phones or wherever, every word of this Bible has been written by someone who was Jewish. 
All right? It's through that nation that he's written these scriptures. So he has been faithful to that. If you want to read a really great book, by the way, I don't know where you can find it, actually, so it's kind of unfair for me to recommend it. But if you want to read a really great book, read this one. It's called uh, Christianity is Jewish. <laughs> and it's by a woman named Edith Schaefer, and it traces this idea of God's covenant promises through the nation of Israel to where we are today uh, knowing Jesus Christ. It's an amazing book. It's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Anyway, what does that mean for us? What does this land and nation and blessing that was promised to Abraham mean for us who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ in 2021? What can we do? Well, if you were to read Romans 11, there's this really cool picture that Paul paints of an olive tree. And he talks about us as believers in Jesus being grafted in to this olive tree. If you're not familiar with that term, uh, grafting on a tree literally means taking a tree that is growing well and sort of scoring it or cutting it, and then taking a branch from some other tree or some other place, placing it against that score, and then binding the two together, and then the tree, the nourishment that comes from the tree, ca causes the branch to grow and flourish and bear fruit. It's been grafted in, so it's literally now part of this tree. And Paul you, you paints this picture of this nourishing olive tree that is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And then he talks about this kind of like unruly, untended, wild olive shoot, which are the Gentiles, that's us, you know? Kind of out there on our own, growing wild. But because of the kindness and mercy of Jesus, we've been, that olive shoot has been taken and grafted to the tree. And that means that all of these covenant promises that he's making through the Old Testament that really directly apply to the, to the Israelites now apply to us. We've been grafted into that and we're now part of it. And that's why we could say this. Peter could say this in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you, believers in Jesus, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do we have a land? Yes, we have a promised land that we are all traveling toward. Are we part of a nation? Yes. We will someday sing the praises of the Lord Jesus with a nation that is, with a group of people that is from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And do we have a blessing to share with the world? Yes. It's through God's people, through His church, that He is making Himself known to the world today. And that's why Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because of the Abrahamic covenant, we Christians can be a blessing to this world and speak of his excellencies to everyone who will stand still long enough to hear. Amen? Amen. So he promised a redeemer. He showed restraint he restored a nation to himself and made us part of it. And now we move on to one that we've already talked about extensively, so we're not going to camp out here too long. But the Mosaic Covenant, and the phrase that I want you to remember here is, God reveals his righteousness. This is a conditional covenant. The previous three have been unconditional, just the Lord saying what he's going to do. But this covenant is conditional. It is a uh, partnership with the people of Israel. And it's fascinating because the covenant comes through the giving of, a, of the law. And the Lord gives the law written on stone tablets to Moses. And it is a law that the people of Israel cannot keep. They are entering into a partnership that they cannot fulfill. But that was kind of the whole point. 
The whole point of the Mosaic Covenant was to give this law and reveal the mankind's need for a redeemer. A redeemer has been promised at the very beginning. But why do we even need a redeemer? Well, because there's this righteousness that we cannot maintain on our own. So the Mosaic Covenant reveals that need for a redeemer. And the coming redeemer, Jesus of Nazareth, would completely fulfill the law to every letter. Well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean we can do? All right, we already kind of mentioned what we can do with this one earlier, but I want to put it in a different context. Uh, we, we went through this series in Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, and then after that comes uh, Leviticus and Numbers, and then in Deuteronomy, where it's kind of like finishing out the account of Moses, we start to get the first mention of something that is absolutely mind-boggling in the history of mankind. The Lord starts to mention for the first time, and He's going to mention it again in Ezekiel, He's going to mention it again in Jeremiah and elsewhere, about something called a new heart. In Deuteronomy 36, he puts it in context of a circumcised heart. He says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He talks about having the law not written on tablets of stone, but actually on their heart, having the, heart, the law written on our hearts. And that's necessary because, I'm going to read this again, just listen. So that, we're getting this new heart, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's the only way to be able to do what they could not do under the law. We must have a new heart. And so he starts to speak of this in Deuteronomy and at times throughout the Old Testament. But you and I are living in a time where if you are saved by Jesus, if you have put your trust in him entirely, you have been given a new heart. The heart of stone has been removed from you and you have been given a heart of flesh, a new creation heart. So what can we do? Well, we can live righteously. We can honor God. We can choose life. Because we have the law written on our hearts, we can know right from wrong. Right after this passage of Deuteronomy 30, the Lord, there's this fantastic account that I always think is almost kind of humorous because the Lord talks to them about what's gonna happen if they follow his law and keep his law, all of these wonderful blessings. And then he talks to them about what's gonna happen if they don't. And it's pretty fantastic on this side, and it's pretty tragic on this side. And anybody who would read it would kind of know what the obvious choice should be. But the Lord, just to make it as clear as possible, then gives them the answer. All right? He like tells these two things, and then he says, choose this one, okay? He says this. See, I have set before you today life and good, which he just described, and death and evil, which he just described at length, and then says, therefore, choose life. Just in case you're still confused, make sure you choose life. Well, because we have a new heart, we can know what that life is, and we can choose it and walk in it. Let's move on to the next one. This is the fifth covenant. He's promised a redeemer. He's shown restraint. He's restored a people to himself. He has revealed his righteousness. And now in the Davidic covenant, the phrase is this, the Redeemer, the promised Redeemer, will reign forever. The Israelite people had a king. From the beginning, they had a king. Their king was God. But they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted a king like the peoples of the earth had a king. And so the, the Lord first allowed them to have judges, which by the way, if you haven't read the book of Judges, if you know anybody who's, who generally doesn't read the Bible because they think it's boring, they haven't read the book of Judges. It's gotta be like the most insanely interesting book in the Bible. All the craziest stuff you could think of happens in the book of Judges, all right? 
So at first they're given judges, and then they're not happy with that, and they ask for a king, and, and the Lord allows them to, through the prophet Samuel, to have a king. Saul is crowned their first king. He doesn't last very long. David comes along. And the covenant that we're going to talk about is made with David. Now, this is a fascinated, fascinating piece of writing if you kind of like grammar. I don't know how many people like grammar. But in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 is where we find the Davidic covenant. And the Lord is speaking to David, but here's why it's interesting grammar-wise. The Lord is talking to David about his son Solomon, and he's talking to him about Jesus. And in this covenant, sometimes he's just talking about Solomon, and sometimes he's just talking about Jesus, and sometimes he's talking about both of them at the same time. So we're not going to go down that rabbit hole too far. It'll take too long. But see if you can hear where the difference is. He says this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there are some phrases in there that are very clearly not talking about Jesus. So let's, let's talk about Solomon first. What was he promising to David's son Solomon? Because it was Solomon who inherited the throne from David. And in that covenant, he promised three things. He promised the throne, he promised a kingdom, and he promised that his kingdom, I'm sorry, he promised a throne, he promised a house, a building of a house, and he promised that his kingdom would last forever. Well, Solomon did inherit the throne. He reigned on the throne of Israel. In fact, he reigned during what is probably the most wealthy and prosperous time in Israel's history. And he built the temple. He built a temple in Jerusalem that you can read the specifics of. It took something like seven years to build the temple and it was ornate and just crazy. But did his kingdom last forever? No, it did not. Solomon was the wisest human being to ever live and yet he still fell in his old age. And as a result, the kingdom of Israel fell apart. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus is the one who inherits the kingdom that he will reign over forever. He's the one who will sit on that throne forever. Now, let's get into what that means for us because there's this really, this part of that covenant is this building of a house. And when you think about what has happened with us through Jesus as part of that specific part of this covenant, the building of a house, it's amazing. Do you remember that David, King David, Solomon's father, was the one who wanted to build the temple? He wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord would not allow him to. He said, your son's going to do it. And I always wondered why David wasn't allowed to build that temple. I mean, David was not perfect, for sure. He sinned, but it also says in Scripture that he was a man after God's own heart. And he sinned, but so did Solomon. So why was Solomon allowed to build this temple? Well, I'm convinced that it's because the Lord knew that he was going to be making this covenant with David. And he would say to David, your son is going to be the one who builds this house. And when he says that, he was going to be referring to both Solomon and his son Jesus. So Solomon builds the temple. It's lavish and expensive, and God's presence was there. But Jesus built a better house. As lavish and as glorious as you can imagine that temple to be in Jerusalem all those years ago, Jesus has built a better house because Jesus's house is you, the church. His presence is with you. 
He promised that he would send his helper, and the helper came. And when you are saved, you are given the Holy Spirit of God. So the presence of God is now in you. You are, we are, those of us who are saved, are the temple of God's Holy Spirit, his holy presence. So what can we do? Well, every moment of our lives, since we walk around every moment of our lives being living examples of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, then we can call on him daily to be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the power and wisdom and might that the Spirit supplies. We can do the things that he is calling us to do that we would never be able to do on our own power. But we have been given the presence of God in us. And so I would urge you to daily make it a habit to call on the Lord and say, Lord, because your presence is with me, fill me anew today that I may do the things that you are calling me to do by your holy presence, by your Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the final covenant. Redeemer's coming. Restraint has been shown by grace and mercy. He's restored a people to himself. He's revealed his righteousness, and he has promised a king who will reign on the throne forever. And now the final covenant is the new covenant. And the phrase is this, Messiah regenerates the heart. Messiah regenerates the heart. After David, after the Davidic covenant, something like 500 years go by during which the kingdom of Israel falls apart. After David, there are 20 kings. And remember, a king was promised to reign forever. So if people during that time were remembering that promise, you have to think that they would wonder every time a new king was crowned, is this the one? Is this the one? But 20 kings go by, most of them are terrible, and depart from the ways of the Lord, and the kingdom falls into turmoil. In fact, it splits into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and they fight with one another, and they're at war with one another, and it just falls apart until finally they are exiled out of the land that they were promised and carried away to Babylon. The whole thing seems like it's falling apart. And what makes it even worse is that now there's this long time of silence where the prophets who for many, many years spoke the inspired word of God, there are no prophets speaking the word of God. There's nothing from the Lord until the arrival in a little town called Bethlehem of a baby named Jesus. And when he is born, the skies light up with an angelic host announcing his birth because he is the one who is going to fulfill all of these covenants in the Old Testament. He has fulfilled these covenants in the Old Testament. We are so used to hearing this story. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, we can fall into the trap of missing the enormity of this just because we're familiar with it. It's like the ultimate can't see the forest for the trees moment, right? We're so used to hearing it that it's hard to see just how big it is. But do you remember that there were these glimpses starting way back in Deuteronomy of a new heart that was gonna be given? Well, Jesus ushered in this new covenant and with it came the new heart. And he said this, very familiar scripture. You'll probably hear it next week when we take communion together. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. He says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. In Luke, when he's talking about this same passage, he says this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.
When we celebrate communion, we are celebrating and remembering this covenant that the Lord announced at the very first communion, and then he secured the next day by his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. A new covenant that is better than the old covenant in every way. If you, we don't have time to go here, but read like from chapter eight of Hebrews to the end. And you'll see the writer of Hebrews saying that the new covenant established in the blood of Jesus is better than the old in every possible way. But when we celebrate communion, here's what I would love. If, if something comes out of this message, here's what I would love to have it be. Are you all familiar, uh, most of you are maybe familiar with an organization called The Bible Project. They do these awesome videos on YouTube. You should go check them out. But they have a, they have a catch line that they include in part of every one of their videos that says that we believe the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. We believe that the Bible is all one unified story that points to Jesus, and that is true. And so when we take communion, we are celebrating specifically the new covenant. But because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these covenants, we're really celebrating all of them. We are really celebrating the fulfillment of all these covenants that the story arc came into being in the person and work of Jesus. Well, how does that apply to us? What can we do? Well, if you remember at the beginning of this, I said that I really struggled with what the goals of this message were gonna be. And the third goal was so that you would know who you are. You would know who you are because of Jesus, because of what he has done. So this is what you can do. You can know who you are, right? Um, let me just refer back to the Lord of the Rings here one more time. Please uh, forgive me for doing that, but this is, the Lord of the Rings is not the Bible. But there's a, great, there's a great part, tiny little part in this uh, story where the main one of the main characters, two of the main characters are sitting talking to one another, and they kind of all of a sudden realize that they're part of this giant story that has gone back eons, right? And because up until that moment, they were in the story, and because they're in the story, they kind of couldn't see outside of the story. But they're having this conversation about this thing and that thing and that thing, and all of a sudden they realize, wait, all of these elements are leading to what we're doing right now. Wait, we're part of this story. Like, we're, we're in this. And so they, it's like this realization of who they are in this greater big story. And that's what I'm hoping you can see. Think about this. This is who you are. Because God promised a redeemer in the Adamic covenant and the redeemer came, you are the redeemed. You are the ones that he redeemed. Because he showed restraint in the Noahic covenant and demonstrated grace and mercy for the first time and then fulfilled that in Jesus, you are the ones, we are the ones who have been shown grace and mercy and can extend it to others. Because of the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of a land and a nation and a blessing, and because that was fulfilled in the perfect Israelite, Jesus, then we are the people who have a promised land and are part of a holy nation, and we can carry the news of that blessing to the world who greatly need it. Because of the Mosaic covenant, revealing God's righteousness and our need for a redeemer and then be it being fulfilled in Jesus who not only kept the law perfectly, but he raised the bar of the law and then kept it perfectly, then we are those whose transgressions against the law have been forgiven and as we sang this morning, have been thrown into the deepest sea to be, known, to be unknown forever. Because he promised that his son in the Davidic covenant would build a house and because that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his sending of the Holy Spirit, then we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can know that about yourself. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So my 
hope for you this morning is that you would be able to look at this big picture and rest in the truth of who he has made you to be. That though we sin, he sees us as his righteous, holy, forgiven people who have his presence with him. And it's all because he does not allow one of his promises to fail and he has kept every single one of these covenants. And when he returns someday, that will be the ultimate fulfillment of every covenant and he will reign forever. The band can come up and I just wanna uh, share one more thing with you that is just kind of mind boggling to me as we close. Uh, for those of you who are students and teachers, yay, school's out for the summer. Um, so <laughs> I'm a teacher, so this was our last week of school. And just this week, I was talking to a friend who uh, is retiring. And it was kind of a surprising thing that she's retiring. It was, she didn't know she was gonna be able to retire so soon. And when I was talking to her one time, she was expressing her thanks to the Lord for working out the details to allow her to be able to retire sooner than, than she thought she was going to be able to. And she was just expressing her thankfulness, you know, like, wow, the Lord really worked all of this out. And of course, I'm in the middle of preparing this sermon, and it all of a sudden hit me, can you imagine the billions of bits of minutia that the Lord had to work out over thousands of years to create this story arc and not allow any one of his promises to ever fail. Thousands of years of tiny little things, billions of people that he orchestrated to make sure that all of this came to be in the person and work of Jesus. And if that's true, which it is, then we can trust him wholly with every moment of our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing to the Lord. Stand up, please.